Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbionica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbionica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. Hey, and welcome to What Future. I'm your host, Josh Witzpolsky, and I'm, I gotta say, very excited about today's show. Many, many episodes ago, we had on a gentleman named Felix Salmon, who is a terrific journalist. He is the uh, chief financial correspondent for Axios, you may have heard of, a very hot website where you can get all the news. And he wrote, we actually touched on it last time we talked, he wrote a book, which was not yet out at the time of us chatting. We, we were actually chatting about the bank crisis that was happening. Anyhow, he has written a book. It's called The Phoenix Economy, Work, Life, and Money in the New, Not Normal. And I got to say, I have been reading it. It is fascinating. It basically details the strange directions the world and money moved in as the pandemic began and as our lives got kind of upended. Anyhow, I don't need to tell you about it. He should tell you about it. So let's not waste any more time Let's get to this conversation. By the way, I've been highlighting the book. I actually hate when people write in books, and Laura, my wife, is a huge like note taker in the margins of books. And so there a lot of times I'll pick up a book of hers and I'm like, I can't read this because you have <laughs> too like much have been underlined. It's like fascinating, uh, you know, 
page 78, you know, reference back to page 78. I'm like, great. If I buy a used book and it's got notations in it, I'm very upset. But I've been I've been highlighting and, and making notes in here. I guess partially because it's a I mean it's a galley, so I don't mind fucking <laughs> I'm like I'm like, wow, this is so liberating. And now I know what everybody's been freaking out about. Anyhow, tell us what the book is about, assuming that we have not already picked up and read it cover to cover in a fevered night of cocaine abuse as, and, and reading, <laughs> as most of, as most of my as listeners, most, would have done. listeners will have done. But yeah. for the two of you who haven't done that, it's, it's basically a book about how COVID changed the world. It's a book about how we had 70 years of, broadly speaking, you know, peace. We had 100 years without a pandemic. We had this post-World War II international order of countries cooperating, of India and China being brought into the global economic system, of everyone trying to cooperate and not go to war with each other. And it kind of worked. And that period of relative stability in geopolitical terms was extremely unusual in historical terms, right? Like that's Mm. not how history normally works. I call it the new not normal because compared to everything that we that we used to since since 1946, it's not normal. But it's actually a return to like the pre-1946 normal of, you know, crazy shit happening all over the place, plagues and wars and depressions and, you know, lots of upside and lots of downside. You know, people forget how amazing the 20s and the 30s were for for the global economy, right? Like there are a lot of great things that happened in between the terrible things that happened. And that kind of combination of the great and the terrible is I think this era that we're entering right now. Right. You're saying peace and prosperity were an unusual, at least it hasn't been completely peaceful or prosperous everywhere, but but this kind of general sense of at least in massive, you know, industrialized nations and things like that, um, that we didn't have huge world wars and pandemics and and things of that nature. That's the abnormal part. And what we are experiencing now is closer to what would be historically considered normal. Exactly. That we had this very unusual degree of international cooperation immediately following the Second World War. We all came together and said, like, never again. And we forgot that in right. 2016. And I actually... I actually kind of date the beginning of the new not normal more to 2016 than to 2020. 2016 was the date at which Britain voted to leave the European Union. It voted to basically jettison all of that kind of international cooperation that the post-war world was built on. And they were like, you know, fuck this, we're going to go it alone. <laughs> right. Then, you know, a little bit later in the year, something very similar happened in the, U- in the US with the election of Donald Trump. That's right. Our own, uh, our own Brexit. And there's a case to be made that the COVID pandemic would have been much milder and much more contained had Trump not been elected president, that, you know, a Clinton administration would not have torn apart the pandemic response teams, that the China-US cooperation would have allowed the CDC and the NIH and those people to go into Wuhan when it was first discovered and they could have reacted more quickly. And yeah, we don't know, like these are counterfactuals, but whatever happened, the result was a pandemic, the likes of which had not been seen in a hundred years. And in fact, a pandemic that in terms of its societal impact was orders of magnitude greater than the one that we had in 
1918. Right. In 1918, the pandemic, we didn't really notice it very much, even though it killed a lot of people. <laughs> like the, the, well, the, we couldn't notice it, could we? Well, yeah, it was hard to notice because, you know, media wasn't the same and, you know, people died of infectious diseases all the time. And it wasn't obvious that everyone was just dying of the same disease at the same time right. to the same degree. It wasn't in that P1 position of like the one thing everyone cared about, mainly because the one thing that everyone cared about was the First World War, which was like a bigger deal. Right. And in fact, if you look at COVID, the, the only thing that knocked COVID out of that P1 position, that caused COVID to no longer be the one thing that everyone thought about and cared about, was the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Right. It was Putin felt his attention waning, and he, he was like, how can I get it back? I was actually going to ask you, do you think that happens in a, in a non-COVID world and i know that's a ridiculous probably a ridiculous uh, question to ask speculation to have you make but yeah, yeah but i'm like, just curious like, yeah so i'm um, no i've been speculating like right? when you when you look at all these pieces on the on the on the map right you look at all the pe the pieces of the puzzle that got kind of splintered apart how mm -hmm. much does like how much does it is that accelerated by or or is it not accelerated by this kind of you know sort of new, the new normal that we entered into during covid it's, it's a really good question and, and yeah look if i can speculate about how President Clinton would have reacted to COVID. Like I can speculate a little bit about this, and I do a little bit in the book. What I say is that pandemics tend to strengthen authoritarians, and they make societies more authoritarian. And people in societies want more authoritarian leaders when there's a pandemic. You can see the way that, say, Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand who was this kind of crunchy granola, crunchy granola, hippie, lefty prime minister suddenly became this like super hard, you know, we are going to lock down and we are going to implement a zero COVID policy. And it was incredibly popular when she did that. Right. Um, but isn't that just good leadership? No, it, I, I mean, mean, but no, there is. You don't, have to, be, you you don't have to be like fascist to be like, we should, you know, absolutely not. And she's a good example. Right. Like I, I don't criticize her at all, but what you see in like countries that have had a lot of plagues and pandemics tend to be less amenable to sort of liberal freedoms and tend to be more authoritarian. There's some interesting research about that, which I put in the book. And what we saw in, you know, during the pandemic was not only Putin doubling down on his authoritarian tendencies by annexing Ukraine, or at least trying to, but also an effective invasion of Hong Kong by China. You know, a lot of people were too worried about COVID to even notice, but the complete loss of freedoms by everyone in Hong Kong and flagrant violation of the treaty that China signed with the Brits in 1997. And they just kind of said, fuck it, you know, you know, we are just going to stomp on Hong Kong and stamp out every bit of freedom of speech on the island. And, right. and like, again, like, would they have done that? Sans COVID, maybe it's hard to tell, but it's definitely of a piece with these other kind of events that were happening elsewhere in the world. Right. I mean, it's also easy, isn't it? I mean, when you've got a pandemic that nobody really knows anything about and a disease that's killing people and you're sort of like, don't leave the house or don't get, you know, businesses have to close or whatever you're doing at that moment, kind of easy to say, well, also we're going to do some other, you know, completely unilateral shit because, you know, who's going to stop us in this extreme emergency state. Like, I feel like there are a lot of things that happened that 
even with Biden, that seem completely out of sync with all, like what we know of American politics, for instance, like giving people money repeatedly. The don't let a crisis go to waste thing. Absolutely. Yeah. You get yeah. you get to use the cover of the crisis to do something like, you know, the Green New Deal that would never go through otherwise. Right. Like, like, like would, a, would a situation like January 6th have happened in a non- uh, uh, wait a second. That was 2020. Wait a second. No, no, 2026 was 2021. Yeah, that was 2021. Oh my god, the, you're right. You're right. It yeah. was during the pandemic. Right. And one height, of the crazy the things pandemic. about one of the things about January the sixth was that people were watching these TV pictures of the rioters swarming across the capital, and no one was wearing masks, and there were these <laughs> crowds. Right, and everyone in sort of blue America was horrified, not only by the, you know, way that democracy was falling apart in front of our very eyes, but also (laughs) by the fact that like it was, they they were so proud of their unmasked status. Right. Not everywhere, but in a lot of uh, large countries, you had a huge amount of people who were like, I don't want to wear a mask. I don't want to participate in whatever this, maybe, maybe not quite as fervent as they were in America. Can, Canadians had some truckers. Uh, we forget perhaps the great trucker <laughs> the brigade. Of, Canadian truckers yeah. were a big deal. But no, even even in you know mild-mannered New Zealand, which has 30 times as many sheep as it does people, yeah. even in New Zealand, there were protesters camped outside the New Zealand parliament waving Trump flags. Yeah. Yes. Like shit got weird. And they weren't even that right wing. They were, just, they were a lot of them were just like yoga teachers wanting, right, you know, who right. didn't believe in vaccines. Well, yeah. There's a, we saw a lot of weird crossover like that. I think during, during the pandemic of vaccine skeptics, medicine skeptics, experts in a field skeptics. We saw, I think a kind of growth of a whole new sort of um, school of thought, which is like, if somebody who is a professional who spent their life studying and learning about something says this is what's going on. You have to, you just out of pocket, reject it uh, and do the opposite thing that they're telling you to do. You know, whole new well of doubt for experts. Yeah. And, and this is related to the broader crisis of trust in institutional legitimacy, which I write about, but it's something that is particularly evident in Germany, weirdly. Mm. Um, That's not that good. You, <laughs> the thing that you're the thing that you're describing of the sort of left and the right making common cause in vaccine skepticism and mistrust of authority was probably at least looking across the world as I was writing this book, it was probably most visible mm. in Germany. And I don't entirely understand why. And like I'm half German, I feel like I understand Germany better than most people. But yeah, it it has this kind of atavistic right wing, which is scary, but always a relatively small minority. But it also has a very strong tradition of, you know, faith in nature. And if it's natural, it's good. And if it's unnatural, it's bad. Right. And, you know, they, they love fresh air and nudity and that kind of stuff. Right. And, and all of that starts coming out in a way that means that they, fail to rise to the occasion of what I call the epistemic crisis, where the main thing that happened, one of the main things that happened in 2020 and 2021 is that we had to just keep on learning new shit all the time. The, the scientists were learning new things and we, we were having to update our priors and say, oh, this is what I, you know, I, I used to think this and now I've got new information and now I think that. And 
you know, the Germans in particular, but like humans in general are bad at that. Right. We like to just have things that we believe and stick with them. And at some point, you know, you have described this very well as what, what happened in America. People just decided like, you know, there was a point in the early pandemic where you said that we shouldn't wear masks. So I'm never going to get wear masks. Or, right. you know, someone told me that like, mRNA vaccines are dangerous. Therefore, I'm just going to believe that and I'm not going to take a vaccine. And these are not really positions that they were argued into. It's hard to argue them out of it, argue people out of it. But more to the point, it's just psychologically easier to have certainty about this disease. Right. Even though, you know, Tony Fauci and everyone else was on the television all the time saying like, we don't have certainty about the disease. There's a lot of things we don't know. We are going to change our mind. You have to understand like this is brand new. We're still doing the science. And, and people just found it really hard to deal with that level of, of ignorance. Right. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. I mean, I think that generally speaking, when we hear experts speak on a topic, if they change their mind, 
a few months later, we find it extremely disconcerting and frankly, like a, it kind of hurts their credibility, right? To say, I mean, you should, it should be something where that we can understand that someone says, I've learned something new and now I've changed my opinion or I've changed my findings on this thing and you can listen to it because I'm an expert. But I think generally speaking, when people change their tune and we don't see, you don't see all of the background work that goes into someone to Fauci saying, oh, okay, we thought you didn't have to wear a mask, but now you do or whatever it is. It just feels like, oh, he doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about, right? Like the, exactly. The out at- I, I find I find that like looking to when people change their mind, looking to when I change my mind, and the, like where where the things that I was wrong about in the pandemic is often the most interesting and profound sort of insights that you get is 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 going like exactly what was it that caused me to be so sure about this you know right. on day one to, and the and what was it that like i was so wrong about that caused me to force my mind to be changed on day two you know it's not really an economics book one of the main things that i was wrong about was the whole idea the recession had been caused by the virus and that therefore we would need to get a grip on the virus in order to get out of the recession. And in fact, we got out of the recession and had this incredibly fast and strong recovery without getting a grip on the virus at all. Right. I mean, a lot of this conversation has been about very dark moments during the pandemic and sort of how society, you know, was collapsing in on itself. But there's actually, the book has a lot of, of bits in it about how kind of amazing the resilience of the economy and of people was around this virus and around this kind of completely unexpected moment. We just recently, my wife and I, with uh, my, my brother-in-law and, and uh, a sister-in-law, opened a bookstore. And it's like, I've never done anything in retail. I know nothing about retail. And you've just talked about the amount of new people starting businesses during the pandemic and sort of the, this this attitude of like you only and look- especially bookstores. Have you seen how many independent bookstores have true? opened up in the past few years? It's is amazing. that true? Is that a, is that a, is there a huge boom in independent bookstores? I mean, that sounds yeah. right to me. But yeah, I mean, like I, I literally this morning I was walking past Bradley Tusk's new bookstore on Orchard Street. Oh yeah, Bradley and- Tusk. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, but I mean, like it's yeah. you know it, it's it's improbable for Josh Topolsky to open the bookstore. It's equally improbable for Bradley Tusk. To well, open right. The well, it's one of these things. Right. It makes sense. Like tons of retail space suddenly opened up everywhere, right? I mean, think about how many retail businesses, I mean, this is sort of depressing, but there were a lot of retail businesses that did not make it or did not make it in their in their uh, pre-pandemic form through the pandemic, right? Like, uh, obviously restaurants had it had difficulties, but there were lots of other places um, where but people- the, But this is a really good example, right? Is that, yes, we saw a bunch of restaurant closures, but what we forget is that restaurants are just a terrible to business to be in, and the kind of people <laughs> right. who open restaurants. Like ninety percent of restaurants fail, I think, is the. This is the this is the statistic that people wheel out, yeah. <laughs> and and, the, and make, you know it's partly because it's a bad business to be in, and partly because the kind of people who open restaurants are good at making food and less good at running businesses. <laughs> if you look at the number of restaurants that failed during the pandemic, like it was high, but it's always high. It wasn't so much higher than normal, and amazingly, the thing that astonished me was that I saw in New York City, which had some of the strictest anti-indoor dining rules in the country, just an astonishing number of new restaurants opening up. Right. And and you're like, who the hell would open up a new restaurant in the face of like basically just economics that make no sense at all? And yet people did it over and over again. Right. Well, I mean, this is that's one of the things that I think is so interesting about about uh, some of what you talk about 
not just the really depressing dark shit that happened during the pandemic, but so much of it that goes against what our expectations would have been and has thrown so many pieces of the economy into such a unexplored or unknown state. I think that's a, I mean, people, people deciding to quit their jobs and open businesses. This apparently was a thing. People quitting their jobs because they just didn't like it and going, fuck it, I'm going to get another job. This was right. This happened in huge uh, numbers during, during the pandemic, correct? The great resignation. Yeah. And, and like, that's an unusual, that's not a normal thing that people do. I mean, most people stick with it. Most people are like, I need this job. And But but this was this was the main theme that runs through the book. One of the main themes is this idea of YOLO, right? right? And, and that a mass mortality event, you know, like COVID, which killed 6 million people and 1 million Americans, like that reminds you of how precious life is, especially when it's so top of mind for so long. And you're like, why on earth would I spend my one precious life working for some boss that I hate, you know? And right. when I have this one life and I'm going to make the most of it and people, I'm going to follow my dreams. And people did this over and over again in America and around the world, but especially in the US, they had this opportunity. There was an eviction moratorium, right. which was imposed by the Center for Disease Controls. And, and like, you know, it, this is kind of amazing that this was a public health thing that they did. They were like, we can't have people being evicted out onto the street when there's a pandemic raging. But that eviction moratorium wound up helping enormously in terms of like new company formation. People are like, I can actually take a risk now because I don't need to worry about losing my house. Right. I mean, weirdly, it almost makes a great argument for like the universal income, universal basic income or, you know, socialism on some grander scale. I mean, it does seem to be like with just a little bit of help from the government, there's all sorts of interesting and good things that can happen to people. Again, I'm not making the argument, but it does seem to suggest that a little bit more help, a top down help can be quite a tool for humanity at large. One of the uh, chapters I have in the book is is basically an extended metaphor about Steve Mnuchin as superhero. You know, again, people don't love to read that because he was such a lickspittle when it came to Trump. But in terms of fiscal policy, he did really amazing things. And we did really see that taking, you know, $1,400 checks and just depositing them into everyone's bank account had astonishingly powerful effects on the American economy and on making people happier. The, that we just saw a new survey count come out last week saying that never in the history of polling have people been happier in their jobs than they are right now. <laughs> I mean, that's interesting because you don't get the, you get the impression that well, at least you get the impression from certain political parties that people are in just like absolutely dire states right now, uh, or dire straits, rather. Are we better off or worse off in America right now than we were pre-pandemic? There's pieces of this that would suggest that we're better off, but like, what is the actual mm -hmm. state of play? Because politically, you can't get a real read on it. So, I mean, there are lots of ways to measure that. And there is a very strong and important school of thought that basically just says, I'm sorry, what? A million people just died. Some like large multiple of that are suffering from long COVID and will continue to do so for many years. You know, we've had this extraordinarily traumatic mass mortality event. We've had a huge mental health crisis, especially from children who weren't able to socialize in the way that they need to be able to do to develop. And 
so on and so forth. And like, what? how can you even ask whether this was good or bad? Because it was obviously right. terrible. Well, I mean, it's obviously bad. I mean, and there's no person who wouldn't say, like, I would have rather not done the pandemic. But, I mean, But then, you know, you look at you know, the economy is incredibly strong. Unemployment is at record lows. Black unemployment is below 5% for the first time ever. You have people happier in their jobs than they've ever been. There was this great reset. People got to rebuild and rediscover what they wanted. And economically and psychologically, there is a case to be made that we are really actually in a better place now. Hmm. The, you know, those of us who are capable of working from home have much more flexibility, much more happiness. That the pandemic has allowed us to look at our lives and get rid of the things we didn't like and double down on the things we wanted to double down on. And we have this increase in compassion and we have mm. now a proof of concept of the world coming together to act in unity to address a major existential risk. You know, in March 2020, everyone just stopped in order to bend the curve and buy us time to develop therapeutics and vaccines and stuff. And right. the world did that collectively and it worked. And if we can do that, then maybe, just maybe, we can come together to address climate change, you know, which is something which I think pre-2020, yeah. like no one, it wasn't even possible. Now, I'm not saying it's likely, but it's possible. Right. Well, I mean, you need a mortal threat, direct mortal threat, I think, to get people to come together. I mean, did people, first off, did people come together? Because, I mean, my recollection of, yes, of course, there was this moment where we all stopped. That definitely happened. There was definitely a moment where we went from, this is going to blow over. This is just, you know, it's just going to be a few weeks of weirdness and then everybody's going to be fine. I mean, I don't know who actually thought that, but certainly there was some sense in the air. I remember being in a meeting <laughs> where people were like, this is going to be over in a couple of weeks. It was like one or two weeks before lockdown. I was in a meeting with some people and they were like, I think this is just going to, it's like a week or two. People are going to feel better. They're going to come back. Well, it wasn't even the, it wasn't even a predictive thing. It was just, it was so, anything else was so inconceivable. Right. No, um, of course. If you remember after, after 9-11, there was a lot of physical devastation in lower Manhattan, which happened to be also where the stock market was. And it was so important for the stock market for people to physically come into work in the stock market building that they had to close the stock market for like three or four days until they could like, you know, get rid of all of the ash and allow people back in. And that was the world in 2001. Right. The entire business world basically couldn't work unless people came back to the office. And so if people were being told you need to stay out of the office for like today and maybe tomorrow, people were like, okay, I'll stay out today and maybe tomorrow. But obviously, you know, this is not a world where we can do this for more than a few days at a time. Like just like 9-11, we're going to have to go back and reopen so the markets can reopen, except that's not what happened. You know, all of the banks found that they could continue operating. Every bank in the world basically continued operating without people coming into the office. Right. The markets, you know, went down, but they were open. Right. And we Im almost immediately in the early days of March 2020 managed to see the economy moving. I mean, you and I are journalists. We were working more feverishly than, you know, anyone. And we 
not on anyone. There were lots of people working yeah, hard on that. We definitely like we, not working that hard, but, <laughs> we, but were we, we, you know, we were working and we were working hard and we were working harder than normal yeah. and we were producing more than normal and our work was more important than normal. Yeah. And what we were doing was entirely remote. And we discovered that we could on the fly build this new system of the means of production could be distributed in a way that no one really understood that it was possible. Yeah before that. Yeah. I wrote a I wrote a piece early on in the pandemic called Thank God for the Internet, which was the first time in a long time that I had been like, I don't know, you probably have the same feeling where you spend many years on the internet, then you saw the worst of the internet in sort of the Trump era. Like in my opinion, the internet that I loved that I thought was so such a wonderful playground became like a kind of nightmare zone for the Trump most of the Trump years. And then the pandemic happened. And it was like, ah, the culmination of all of the worst things. It's like now we're literally like dying and we're all going to die. And there was a pretty early period. I mean, when I, I, when I wrote about it, it was um, Mo Willems who has, who writes kids books. Don't let the pigeon drive the bus. I don't know if you're familiar with the, uh, with the book series or not, but he had, was doing these like live, let's all draw together workshops on YouTube. And it was like, you know, hundreds of thousands of kids like watching and doing the, and she was doing it. And I was like, holy fuck, you know, God, what would life be like? Like, yeah, for as bad as the internet has seemed for the last several years, you know, it's impossible to imagine, imagine the pandemic with no internet. I mean, to your point about the 1918, you know, flu, people didn't have a way to communicate really with each other about what was going on or how they were doing or techniques to stay alive or any of those things, right? Yeah. You know, after 9-11, the blogosphere basically sprung up. 9-11 was this like big thing that everyone decided to, to blog about. And that was- are, like, you, are you like, have you heard of 9-11? Early blogs were, were <laughs> you very- You remember this thing, 9-11. Very, very, very like 9-11 centric. But back then, you know, we had this very open and freewheeling and fabulous and fun internet, but it definitely didn't have- the kind of bandwidth to have live video streaming. Right. And yeah, almost everyone with internet had enough in had enough bandwidth to do live video streaming come 2020 yeah. was enormous for Mo Willems YouTube's for, you know, allowing the Zoom calls and the FaceTimes. Don't um, clubhouse, that, you know, clubhouse? Kept, kept us together. There was the clubhouse, <laughs> which wasn't video, but like, but yeah, there was, you know, I, I remember in the 2020 election, there was this crazy fundraiser for the Democrats, which was basically the entire living cast of the Princess Bride all getting together and just like re rereading the whole thing. And it was just, it felt right. like a very magical re remote thing. Right. They did that Imagine, they had that Imagine video with uh, Gal Gadot. <laughs> the, the less said about that, the better. Yeah. But, and then more, you know, prosaically, we had Slack and Zoom, which, you know, saved countless companies. They came through in this clutch time when they were needed most. Right. And we managed to get through this period of like, you know, shit, how are we going to be able to cope with our offices? And mostly we did, right. to I think everyone's surprise. 
Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. I mean, I remember having this realization on a fairly regular basis or this kind of thought that in a popular fiction, when the pandemic is depicted or an apocalyptic sort of world ending event, which is how COVID felt at the beginning, you imagine you're like fighting zombies or people are dying, like, you know, their heads are exploding around you or whatever kind of, you know, total like apocalyptic insanity. Nobody made a movie or wrote a book about how like the apocalypse would be you sitting at home, like working. Like you, you being <laughs> exactly. at home, like on Slack, like, no, think about the, I mean, I remember, you know, at, at the time, you know, at that time I was managing a bunch of different news teams and I would sit in Slack with them and you'd be like covering the news, you know, talking about like, oh, Fauci says now you've got to wear a mask or you're going to die. And like, oh, it's like now it's definitely airborne. It's coming through the vents and whatever, you know, you were on Slack. You weren't like in a bunker, yeah. right? You were looking out the window and not able to interact with humanity. But other than that, everything seemed normal, right? Like, for, I mean, norm with quotes around it, but I had a pre-existing intellectual awareness that a, gl a global pandemic could strike at any time. But when I thought about what it might be like to live through a pandemic, and I didn't think about it very often, what I thought about were, you know, people getting sick, people dying, you know, and then if you read about plagues, that's what you read about. The, right. the buboes, the deaths, that what I call in the book the murine vectors, which for those of you who don't have a dictionary to hand just means rats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Most of us were not sick most of the time, and, and but we were distanced. And so the experience of COVID was not one of sickness. Right. The experience of COVID was one of, of like, what the hell am I going to do with my kids when they're not at school? 
yeah, I mean, most people didn't get really sick. Sort of one of the one of the problems with COVID, not, and this is a good thing, it's a great thing, but like one of the issues with educating people or making people feel like it was real, I feel like was that it was, you didn't feel it. If a family member didn't die, right? Or if you didn't know a good friend who died or got really sick and was, you know, near death or whatever, you didn't feel like that kind of palpable. There wasn't a sense that it was happening at all. And that's why I think a lot of people kind of went crazy, right? Like a lot of people were like, why are we still wearing masks? Why are we, why do we have to stay home? I mean, a big part of what happened there was like a little bit of um, people are kind of like, well, if I don't see it and if I don't feel it, if I don't hear it, like, is it even really happening? Which is a kind of a deranged way to think about it. But, you know, I mean, you mentioned like this sort of YOLO mentality, which runs through everything that happened or many things that happened with the economy and with the way we work and the way we live. And that's so much what the book is about is the sense of like, you only live once. I mean, literally, right? Like that, you know, suddenly your life feels much more precious. And also you start thinking about, well, if this is the, if it's the end times or whatever, maybe I ought to do the things that I wasn't going to do or try the things I never tried. Obviously the YOLO mentality, a lot of that stems from the use of that term stems from what happened with Wall Street bets and, and meme stocks and, uh, NFTs as a companion and crypto as a companion to that, like of this moment of really weird things. Like you're talking about, like we've talked about a lot of like mass economic sort of things, but there was this thing about how money started to seem to people that I feel like is very unique to this moment. Can you talk a little bit about like the GameStop, the sort of meme stock moment and how that was juiced by, or, or if it was juiced by the pandemic? Oh, I mean, it could never have happened without the pandemic. You had a whole bunch of people sitting at home. I guess I say, like, they weren't worried about getting evicted. Um, <laughs> like, I'm good. Time to trade. There was an eviction moratorium. They, they, you know, they had a lot of time on their hands and they had 1400 stimulus checks, $1,400 stimulus checks sitting in their bank account needing to be spent on something. <laughs> right. um, and they had for the first time, the opportunity to engage in um, in genuinely social stock market speculation that, you know, Wall Street bets was the most prominent of the social vectors where people would trade trading ideas. But, you know, for all that people had tried to do like social trading in the past, it never really took off in the way that it did in the early months of 2021. And at the same time, yeah, there was this feeling that money had ceased to have any real meaning. You know, it's not something, you know, we were spending it on crazy things because <laughs> what else were you going to do? Right. And there was a lot of it sloshing around the economy because of all of the fiscal stimulus. And instead of investing being this like very ser serious kind of like, I should save up carefully every month and right put a little in the 401k or whatever yeah you know it just became it became this game it became a fun game and it became a way to get rich quick right and you realized everyone realized on some level they probably weren't going to get rich quick but like <laughs> at least it would be a fun way to try right right and and investing for many people you know even back in the uh, 50s and 60s you know was always like an enjoyable hobby that certain type of like white men would trade stock tips on the golf course. And, you know, it was social in that sense. Right. It just was turbocharged. It was much faster and it was much more aggressive and it was much more like, you know, going to the moon and swapping between meme stocks and cryptocurrencies. And should we buy a, you know, monkey JPEG because that's <laughs> going to like make us rich. 
it's very easy to understand people going, hey, we're all going to invest in this thing or like, actually, we can we can pump this stock up if we all go in on it or whatever, you know, as a group, a social kind of experiment. That makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot less sense when it is the monkey JPEG, when it is this esoteric. I mean, as soon as NFTs like that, just the hint of it being an idea started, it became like a multi-million, billion-dollar business, right? I mean, it became a, it was like, I mean, what's the timeline from like NFTs? I mean, I remember, I what I do remember is that uh, at the time there was, a, we had a website called Input, which is a rest in, rest in peace, no longer exists. Like many of the things begun during the pandemic. <laughs> but we did an article on NFTs in, I want to say, fall of 2019. And by the summer of 2020, it was like, Beeple, the Beeple thing was happening. I mean, when did when was his Sotheby's? Was Sotheby's? He had a it huge, was uh, Christie's. Yeah, he, that, oh, Christie's. and there were these two these two like crypto whales started bidding against each other to try and, and I think it was almost coordinated that they both wanted the biggest possible number for that right. piece, not because they thought it was worth it, but <laughs> because, and they were quite right about this that like if they could get it to be worth more than like, you know, a Jasper Johns or a Picasso or a Velasquez, then at that point, that would ratify NFTs as an asset class and everyone would just start buying all manner of NFTs. And that's exactly what happened. That, that exactly sale really, really kicked off the NFT frenzy. And, you know, people forget that NFTs were really invented by, um, Anil Dash and Kevin McCoy back in like 2014, but no one really noticed, no one really cared. And then they just kind of sat there hibernating for a while until, until the pandemic just came along to make the whole thing explode. Well, people were just like, okay, maybe there's something we can, there's an idea we can pull off the shelf. We're, we're running low on ideas right now. So, I mean, it's interesting. And also Anil wrote a piece, I, I believe like at the peak of NFT, what is the what is the word for when people are buying things blindly like maniacs? There's some word for this that I can't think of. But tulip mania. Yeah, tulip mania. I, I, I do I do in the book when when I my my copy editor was um, very by the book in terms of like whenever I used an acronym, I'd always needed to spell out what it stood for. Right. But when it came to NFTs, I insisted that we 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 just said that what it stands for is newfangled tulips. <laughs> is that in the book? I because that's I, in the book. Okay, I might have, I might have skimmed over that, but I was reading the <laughs> NFT part. I actually I highlighted a bit from the NFT part. You say connoisseurship in the NFT world was worthless. Art was valued not on its intrinsic qualities, but rather on its status as a meme. Then I put a question mark next to it because. Is that not just what art is? You say it, intrinsic, but what is intrinsic about? And by the way, I'm not defending NFT art, much of which is astonishingly bad. Like, I mean, uh, uh, I've said this before. I might have even said it on the last podcast that I considered the NFT boom to be the Olympics of bad art. And uh, I will take that one. You know, I will stand by that one until I die. But isn't art really just about what is valuable? I mean, yes, I understand there's critics and I understand there's a classical definition of what is what is great art. And there's a market built around that, but is it not really just the same idea? Yeah. I read about this in the book a bit, right? That we are seeing the memification of the art world. That like the art that people are buying is 
younger and younger and less and less bought because it's particularly important or particularly good. Right. You know, the, the classic example would be someone like Cause, who sells for millions, even though his art is objectively terrible. And I think most of the people who buy it understand that his art is <laughs> well, I mean, objectively terrible. But I um, think actually, but in context, when if you look at Cause, the Cause art in context of what it is, where it comes from and how it was initially expressed has some historical context and also legitimately was kind of a new form at the beginning of its sort of... Uh, well, I mean, okay, so it, it does come out of a tradition of street art that is real and interesting, and there are real and interesting street artists. I don't know if he was ever... Like, he was briefly a street artist, but he came much later. Like, there are much more important and much better street artists I, Again, I'm not I'm making a case for cause as like a great... But I can understand that I can understand the market for cause. The second coming of like Jean-Michel Basquiat or even Keith Herring, he is not. Right. Right. But put that to one side, like you're absolutely right that the level of connoisseurship needed to understand the art that people get really excited about has been declining steadily for decades. And that trend accelerated during the pandemic. And the art that sells for millions is getting dumber and dumber. And the art that requires a large amount of connoisseurship, you know, if you are trying to sell some beautiful 17th century Dutch still life or something, you know, the number of people who are interested in that is getting smaller and smaller. Right. Because they're all too busy chasing some, you know, 25-year-old African wunderkind who's going to be, you know, here today and gone tomorrow. Because I think NFTs, the whole thing is kind of breaks down on a fundamental level. I was going to say, I was saying that Anil, Anil Dash wrote a piece basically saying the underlying technology of whatever everybody's using right now is, is not it. It is not the thing that would create an NFT in the way that I think uh, he envisioned or that would make sense for the actual like sort of collectability of it, if you want, or the, um, the preciousness of the singular versus the, you know, the copies. Right. And and just to be clear, like what happened in the NFT boom was super interesting. That this thing that was designed to be a way of allowing people to own and sell digital art very rapidly, like that whole concept of digital art and like the Beeple thing, which was like how what I think of NFT 1.0, kind of fell by the wayside to be replaced by the social thing of right. the monkey JPEGs and the rocks and the squiggles and the penguins and all of the other right. things. Slurp slurp juices. Where they where they like sell ten thousand similar things and everyone wants to join the club. And it's really the metaphor there is not the art world anymore. The metaphor there is now just the limited membership club where everyone wants to get a membership card right but but of course broken down it breaks down to the fundamental level which is that the thing that is so valuable and collectible and only the special members can have it was actually just the actual jpeg or whatever a <laughs> ping i mean they are just it is just a, a copyable image right i mean i I, right. I think that's the but i think all of this it kind of brings me like in talking about the nfts because it's such a it's such a bizarre an offshoot of crypto, right? It's an offshoot of this kind of state of being, uh, certainly of the Wall Street bet stuff of like community sort of building around like investing and, and sort of club membership in these things that are centered around money and money making. But the things that people did during the pandemic and maybe all of the kind of side effects of it now that we're experiencing, is it a bit that it felt like for the first time maybe ever for a lot of people, maybe for maybe for everybody, 
that whatever the structure of reality that we've been living inside of, like this thing that we all consider to be a shared reality where there's people who know what's happening and people who don't know what's happening, people who are in control and people who are not in control, that to some extent, once you force everybody inside their house and once everybody is online and once Fauci one day is saying wear a mask and the next day saying don't wear a mask, that there's a bit of all of this that is like a stemming from a sense that suddenly people had an autonomy and lack of control that had previously had never seemed accessible to them, like on a kind of fundamental philosophical basis. Am I crazy for thinking this? Does this even make any sense or do I sound? No, totally? no, it, it totally makes sense. And that's, and that's what really undergirded great resignation. You know, the phenomenon that was incredibly visible in the economic statistics about there's this wonderful survey called jolts, the job openings and labor turnover survey. And it shows you like how many people quit their job that month. And it just went through the roof. It was like levels that were just completely unprecedented and unthinkable. And people left the service industry in particular um, because those jobs tend to be quite miserable. <laughs> right. They pay poorly and they suck. <laughs> well, and then what happened is they wound up paying much better because the only way that anyone could attract people back into those jobs was by effectively doubling the amount of pay they made. Right. And so if you, if you were, you know, back of house cook in a New York City restaurant, Suddenly, your pay doubled. Basically, you used to be earning eight dollars an hour. Now you're earning sixteen dollars an hour. You know, still not making millions, but you're doing a lot better than you were. Right. You and you can take that, put it right into an NFT. No problem. <laughs> we we had this radical reshaking of supply and demand. I have a chapter called "Shaking the Etcher Sketch." That we had this world that was very clearly delineated and made sense, and then someone just picked up the whole thing and shook it, and we had to re build and reconstruct something new and different and better. And it wasn't necessarily going to be better, but in many, many ways, it really was better and is better. And that is the Phoenix. You know, that is the Phoenix of the title. That is the Phoenix economy. Right. Okay. Let me ask you one final question, which is, does the Phoenix keep rising? Does the Phoenix burn out? What happens? Does this keep <laughs> going? Are we in, a, is the Phoenix economy now a permanent state of like, kind of a YOLO state of, of economics and, and of society where, where anything goes? Or does this settle down into something that looks more familiar over time? So the legend of the Phoenix is one of death and ashes and then rebirth. And then you're right that the Phoenix kind of just flies around for a few hundred years. And then <laughs> is it, that what it does? And then it, okay. and then it, and then it dies again and gets reborn again. And like oh, the, oh. the periods of death and rebirth are definitely much less common than the normal periods of nothing much happening. So yeah, like this current world that we have built on the fly in response to the pandemic is the world that we are going to be in for the next 10, 20, 30, I don't know how many years. We, I doubt we're going to have another major conflagration. Yeah. I mean, it's decades of, of this that, that we're going to be living on. Yeah. Okay. The reason I wrote this book and not, you know, various other things that I thought about writing about over the years is that I have a very strong belief that if you're going to write a book, it has to remain relevant for, you know, five or 10 years. People, at least, you know, people should be able to take it down from a library book, you know, library shelf in... 10 years or 15 years and read it and learn something and have it be relevant and important. And I really think this book does that, you know, that it, the, it's trying to explain 
a world that's going to be with us for a while. This isn't some like history of what happened in March 2020 that is interesting only to historians. This is an attempt to explain and give people the tools to understand this world that we are now going to be living in, you know, especially for, you know, Gen Xers like you and me, basically for the rest of our lives. Yeah. I mean, listen, I think it's a fascinating book. I have to say, like, I do think it's like an amazing sort of um, capture of a moment in culture that is so unlike, I mean, I think about this all the time, just so unlike anything that has happened in at least, of course, in my lifetime and in your lifetime in terms of like just a, a shift on on so many levels. And and uh, I thought I think it's I think it's fantastic. And I obviously like, you know, wanted to have you on to talk about it because I think everybody should go and read it. So, Felix, thank you for taking the time once again to come on and and chat with me. And uh, you got to come back and do it again sometime. I would love to. Well, that is our show. Uh, Our show, unlike the Phoenix, instead of rising from the ashes, has now died down back into the back into the fire, back into the I don't really know. Felix didn't really explain what happens to the Phoenix exactly. He did say there was a cycle, though which is, I got to read, I got to look into that. Anyhow, I thought it was fantastic. I love talking to, to Felix. I think he's uh, just so entertaining to listen to and also so smart. And uh, he definitely will we'll have him back on. The next time there's a terrible financial crisis, that's the first call I'm making. Anyhow, that is our show. We'll be back next week with more What Future. And as always, I wish you and your family the very best. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. 
It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. 